Okay, let's talk about good and bad today, shall we? Would you stand with me in your home? And uh, let's read this passage of scripture together. When the priest Pasher, son of Emmer, the official in charge of the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, he had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put in the stocks at the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. The next day, when Pasher released him from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, the Lord's name for you is not Pasher, but terror on every side. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power and the grace and the truth that set us free that are in your word. And I pray that you do that today, Father. Open our eyes, mess up our stuff, make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Uh, many of you, uh, well, some of you know what that quote is from. It's uh, Charles Dickens' novel, Tale of Two Cities. And you may feel like that in some way you're living in that situation right now. Uh, and that's because it's often hard to tell the difference between the best of times and the worst of times. The economic situation that brings disaster to one segment of the economy brings prosperity to another segment of the economy. Um, the economic situation that, that hurts somebody's business has great prices for other people and bargains and deals. So how do you tell the difference? My dad, you heard me talk about him a few times. Not too, not too many of you would remember him anymore because he passed away 12 years ago at the age of 92. But my dad, uh, I won't say he was fond of saying, but he was found saying on a number of occasions. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago. In fact, here's a picture of him and here's his saying. What this country needs is a good depression. Wow. Uh, that did not make me uh, happy. It didn't cheer me up to hear him say that. Uh, however, my dad understood what the depression was all about. Um, and in fact, he understood what some hard times could be all about. Uh, at the age of four, his father passed away in a global pandemic. Uh, the Spanish flu, they called it at the time, though it didn't come from Spain. Uh, <clears throat> and when he was 13, the stock market crashed. Uh, the hardest years of the Depression were through his teen years. He got married in 1936, which was also very much the, the height of the Depression. Uh, after, his, after his father passed away, his mother uh, spent the next 46 years of her life as a as uh, a widow, and his father had been a sharecropper, so he didn't leave anything really for them. And she had, she had five kids. She actually had six kids, but one of them died in infancy. Uh, so my dad, you know, when he talks about the depression, he wasn't talking about an abstraction. So why in the world would he say what we need is a good depression? Well, I think the first thing that we, that we have to look at is what is meant by the word good? Uh, we've kind of taken that word and, um, and, and cheapened it, I guess you will. It, it's, it's like third rate. There's good, there's better, there's best. And so, you know, if all you can do is good, then you, 
You just, you just do good. Uh, George Bernard Shaw had a famous quote. He said, uh, England and America are two countries separated by a common language. Uh, and he was actually right. When we were in Zimbabwe, we particularly discovered this uh, in, on a number of occasions. And it seems that the, uh, the people in the UK tend to take their language a little more seriously. They try to be more accurate with it. And one of the ways that I discovered this was in playing golf. Because in playing golf, if you, if you make a shot that's pretty successful over here, you'll always hear, good shot. Man, uh, over there, you never heard anybody say good shot. They said, well done. And the, the difference is, well done meant you just did something well. Uh, good shot technically means that shot has high moral values to it. Because you see, the word good really is a moral quality. Uh, Jesus used the word good in the moral way, and so did the psalmist. Over in Psalm uh, 14, and in fact, it's repeated again in Psalm 53, it says that there's no one who does good. People, there's no one on the face of the earth who does good. Uh, Psalm 14 actually explains that. It adds one verse that Psalm uh, 53 doesn't have. Uh, it says that those who are evildoers are those who frustrate the plans of the poor. Uh, we have a tendency of, of thinking of evil in, in different contexts and in different terms, but the Bible defines it, evildoers, as those who frustrate the plans of the poor. That kind of puts a different light on it, doesn't it? So anyway, if there's no one good, well, there's actually an exception. Uh, Jesus was approached by a young man one day who called him good teacher uh, over in Luke chapter 18. <clears throat> and Jesus said to him, he said, why do you call me good? No one is good. Haven't you read the Psalms? Except God alone. Now, I, I, I kind of think that he was maybe trying to lead this guy somewhere and go, are you calling me good because you recognize who I am? Now, I don't know that that was necessarily what he was doing, but Jesus was using uh, good in the biblical sense. This other guy was probably using good in the way that we tend to use it. Hey, you're a good teacher. Uh, the passage that we read today <clears throat> uh, concerned Jeremiah the prophet and Pasher. Uh, what happened right before this? Jeremiah had taken some of the, the leaders of the land uh, down to the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom was, it was an open secret that this was a place where child sacrifice was going on. Uh, the, uh, there were some very evil practices going on there, some, some pagan practices to false gods. People were actually sacrificing their, their children at this place. And so Jeremiah had taken a, um, he had taken a last week, uh, Elder Mike talked about going to the potter's house. He had taken a jar and he, and it was a, it was a beautiful jar. And he said, this is, this is what you're supposed to be. This is what you look like, but here's God's judgment on you. And he broke it in the valley there. And he said, you know, this is going to become the valley of destruction. It's what it's going to be called. And so that was, that was the, the, the prelude. That was the setup for the passage that we read today. The, the reforms 
that King Josiah had made uh, when, when he was king. He was no longer king now, but the reforms that he had made had made the, had made the temple popular. It was now a place where people wanted to come. It was the place to be, the temple. But not much else had changed. It had just become a popular place. Jeremiah ministered during a time when most of the popular prophets, he described them this way. In fact, he described them this way this way twice. Over in Jeremiah chapter 6, he said, this is, this is how they are. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say. When, when there is no peace, and he repeats it again in, in chapter 8. So obviously it was something, something fairly Im, 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 important. And it goes on later in the chapter to go, the reason that they do this is because they're greedy for gain. You see, Pasher, uh, as the chief official of the temple, had a vested interest in the popularity of the place. He had a vested interest in, in keeping the people coming. He had a vested interest in everybody having a good time and enjoying themselves and, 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 and hearing a, a good message. And Jeremiah was bad for business. The message that Jeremiah was bringing was not one that the people wanted to hear. And you keep preaching that kind of stuff, they're going to stop coming. And so he had Jeremiah beaten and thrown in the stocks. Now, I've had, I've had some sermons that weren't particularly good, and, but so far I've not been beaten for any of them. That may change today, but, uh, but hopefully it won't because not many of you are here. You can't really get your hands on me. Uh, Jeremiah was bad for business. Uh, Jeremiah told Pasher the next day, he said, the Lord has a different name for you. He's not going to call you Pasher anymore. He's going to call you terror on every side. Pasher, I tried to find out what the name means and really couldn't find the meaning for it. I did find out that it is of Egyptian origin. Egyptian, Egypt. The, the place of bondage, the place that represents the world, the place that the people of Israel have been delivered out of. God says, that's not going to be your name anymore. Your name's going to be terror on every side. And that's exactly what happened. See, the world looks at Pasher and, and sees success and, and prosperity and, and sees, oh, peace, a comforting, warm, fuzzy message. God sees terror on every side when he looks at him. I, uh, I did something extremely American this last week. I ordered something online. I do that pretty frequently, actually. So I, I you know, I am, I am American. Uh, and when, um, when it, the package arrived, which was yesterday, there was a note in it. And I want to show you the note. This is, this is the note. This is, this is what it said. <clears throat> Anything on there, jump out at you. Let, let me help you with what I'm wanting to have jump. Your happiness is our top priority. After doing this arch-typically American thing, I did an atypically American thing, and I actually thought about what it had said. Your happiness is our top priority. And my first, my first uh, uh, thought was, that's disingenuous. I seriously doubt that. I think your top priority is probably, you probably went in business to make a 
make money. You know, and, and the fact that uh, if it makes me happy, you're likely to make more money. Okay, so that's just ancillary to it. You may also have a priority of hopefully putting out a quality product and probably getting the best price. And there's just a whole bunch of stuff in the hopper of my happiness in terms of, of your priority. Uh, there is a gospel that is preached at times, and it's, it's very popular, not just in this country, but all over the world. We've spread the darn thing. That that phrase would fit very well. Your happiness is our top priority. You say, well, doesn't God want us to be happy? Yeah, God wants us to be happy. It's nowhere close to his top priority for us. In fact, it's pretty far down on the list because if these other priorities get taken care of, happiness will take care of itself. His top priority is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. I think he's probably also more interested in our character than he is, is in our happiness. I think he's also more interested in us expressing love in our lives, genuine love in our lives, than he is in our happiness. There's, he's more interested in us having actual peace in our lives. And, and the truth of the matter is, if you're happy, peace is pretty easy to come by. So sometimes happiness has to be taken out of the way for you to learn what peace really is and where the source of it really comes from. Make it him. We've been, uh, these last few weeks, drawing topics out of uh, Eugene Peterson's book, Run With the Horses. And I got some quotes from the chapter that we're looking at this week that's about this passage from Jeremiah that I'd like to share with you. And, and the first one is this, and I hope it hits you as hard as it hits me. Some people come to church looking for a way to make life better, to feel good about themselves, to see things in a better light. Other people come to church because they want God to save and rule them. Eh, let's just stop there for a second. Pause and think. Yeah. Uh, and then he goes on to say, same, same paragraph. One group of people sees religion as a way to successful, happy living. Nothing that interferes with the success or interrupts the happiness will be tolerated. The other group sees religion as a way in which hurt, flawed, and damaged persons become whole in relation to God. Anything will be accepted in order to deepen and extend that reality. That's good preaching. <laughs> that's, that's better than I could do. That's why I put the thing up and, and, and read it. My dad and my mom belong to that second group. And that's why my dad thought a, dep a good depression might be a good thing. Because he sort of saw the quality of people's lives deteriorating, even as the quality of their stuff increased and we might say well people are so damaged they they need a positive message they need to be encouraged they need yes people do need to be encouraged but they don't need a positive message they need a god message 
Because a positive message is a band-aid. It's treating the wound as if it were not serious. A feel-good tonic won't actually do any lasting good in our lives. It'll just make us feel better for a little while. What we need isn't more stuff. What we need is more God. That's what truly brings about changes in our life. That's what truly takes shattered, broken, discouraged people and turns them into people who can live victoriously in life. And we're in a situation right now where there's a tendency to go, when are we going to get things going again? Well, you know, when are we going to get this? When are we going to get back to normal? That's a pretty <laughs> back to normal. Woohoo! Uh, how about going forward to something to a better normal? You know, but when are we going to get things going again? Well, hopefully, not until we're still long enough to realize our need for God, to realize that there's only one who can satisfy. And you can't walk into a store and buy it. God isn't interested in making us feel good. He is interested in making us good. Yeah. Well, Peterson has another quote in this chapter that I want to bring up. And this is this. Why do we so easily swallow the lies? Why do we find it so difficult to accept the truth? Because we're looking for bargains. We're looking for shortcuts. Now let me just add on to that. We're looking for someone to blame. Yeah. So we spit on and revile and sometimes even murder those who are just trying to keep us safe. Just trying to help us. This isn't... This isn't about politics. Let me tell you something. When I go into a store these days, I wear a mask. Not because, I don't, I don't know if it's going to do any good or not. You know, you hear one report, well, these things don't do any good at all. And you hear another report, well, yeah, these things can actually help, especially if both people are wearing masks. The reason I do it is because it says to the person in the store that can't go anywhere else, I care about you. I'm, I'm, I, want you, I want you to know I appreciate you. I want you to know that I appreciate what you're doing and I appreciate you being here and I understand that you have to be here. I'm just here voluntarily. But we'll believe, we, we're in a place now where we're in, we have the danger of believing. You know, we want a bargain. We want something. We want a quick answer. We want a quick fix. And so we'll believe every crackpot theory that comes down the pike and, and, and see conspiracy lurking in the shadows around every corner. Anything to explain why my discomfort can't be about God calling me back to him. Can't be about him trying to mold and shape my life and get me back on the center of the wheel. Zelda Mike was talking about last week. <laughs> not necessarily fun. <laughs> you, you know, Christ did not enter into the world to have fun. He entered into the world to save sinners. And look, I, I, I enjoy having fun. And, and it is fun to serve Christ, and it is fun to be saved, but it's hard sometimes. 
One other quote that Peterson has from this chapter. He says, Jeremiah didn't like any of it. He didn't like being beaten. He didn't like being put in the stocks. He didn't like being unpopular. But he wasn't afraid of it. Because the most important thing in his life was God. Not comfort, not applause, not security, but the living God. What he did fear was worship without astonishment. Religion without commitment. He feared getting what he wanted and missing what God wanted. As you attempt to find worship in this strange context, let me assure you, it is there to be had, and it can be astonishing. <laughs> you know, as we were, as we were singing um, Sovereign Over Us, uh, yeah, as we were singing that, that song always gets me. You know, and I was... You know, I was, I was kind of all, all over the place singing it because that's what it does to me. And I, you know, I don't know that this happened. And, and, and I know that not everybody's wired the way that I'm wired and everything. But, you know, there'd be no, uh, no problem whatsoever for you being at the house. And instead of, well, I like that song. You like that song? You know, there'd be no, I mean, what would it do? maybe to your kids and to your family, if daddy got up and went, even what the enemy means for evil, he turns it for our good. You hear that? Even what the enemy means for evil. I mean, seriously, talk about astonishing. Yeah, but it's there. You can do it, and maybe you're not wired that way. Maybe it's just, maybe it's just your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood and the quarantine and my prayer is that you'll be astonished in finding worship in a new way in, in, in a new context and it doesn't mean that we don't want to open the house at some point in time it maybe means that when you come back to the house you might come back to the house a different person you might actually bring something Another of my dad's favorite sayings was, you only get out what you're willing to put in. And, you know, quite frankly, we get used to coming and putting in not much. I mean, we may bring our offering, and I appreciate that, but do we bring our passion? Do we bring our reality, our hurts, our fears, our joys? And let me just say this, you know, many of you have seemingly upped your commitment during this time. And that's, that's a good thing. I, I'm, I'm not just talking about giving, but I, I suspect some of you are maybe reading the Bible more. You, you likely think about Sunday mornings more than you did back when it was just the same old, same old. Hopefully we're learning to want what God wants. One more scripture verse. James 1, 17. It's one of, one of my favorites. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Now some would look at this verse and would conclude that 
when something happens that I think is good, that it must be from God. That's not what that means. Because the corollary to if something happens that I think is good, it must be from God, is if something happens that I think is bad, then that's obviously from the devil, and I've got to rebuke that thing. And that's just wrong. Since, and, and, and then the end of that road is that since things that I, that I don't like happen, how could a loving God possibly let that happen? And you follow that road all the way to the end, it becomes, there is no God. Well, there is. (laughs) And God's gifts are truly good, which also makes them perfect. They're not third rate, under, better, or best, but they're good. And if we learn to embrace that, if we learn to embrace his, his gifts, they will confound every attack of the enemy. Can, can you imagine how frustrating it is for the enemy to try and attack somebody who, when they bring evil, goes, God's at work, God's going to make this work. What are we going to do to that person? Ah, let's give them everything they want. And then they won't want what God wants. If we'll embrace what God wants and his good gifts in our lives, it will defeat every fear because nothing, our joy, our salvation, our victory, nothing can be taken away from us. It will increase our love. It will increase our understanding. It will foster humility in our lives. It will nurture peace in our lives. It will conform us to the image of Jesus Christ astonishingly so that ultimately we might hear, well done, good and faithful servant.